0: Welcome to Ryan Dulley.
1: Hello, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Today, we look at a private eye detective in 1970s California, investigating the disappearance of his former lover. But in addition to that, we got a lot of really fucking weird shit going on. I'm joined by my special guest, Killian Gummo, to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's drug-induced dark comedy noir, Inherent Vice. Okay, Killian. It's really interesting to me that you choose this. I'm happy that you chose it because this movie kind of encompasses a movie. It's in that category of movies that's like, I've seen it, but it's one of those I keep saying when it's brought up in conversation, I need to rewatch it and I need to rewatch it. Sure. And I've been saying that for four years now. So (laughs) thank you for finally making me... Absolutely, really like actually like sit down and rewatch it. <laughs>
0: I would definitely say that I chose this film for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. um if I'm just looking objectively at the actors in it, I love Joaquin Phoenix, definitely top three favorite actors for me. He's just such like an eccentric like dynamite actor with whatever material you give him, especially something like a Paul Thomas Anderson joint like this. Uh, also, I love the genre. I'm a big fan of uh mysteries and noir mysteries like detective flicks almost like pulpy genre flicks like this and plus i figured for someone who's not really familiar with the filmography of paul thomas anderson this was as good a place to start as any um i had just you just dive right in exactly (laughs) um when i had actually first heard about this film i had just walked out of shane black's the nice guys oh and uh, shane black was my uh it still is my favorite writer and someone who i was seeing the movie with had actually given me given me a recommendation to see Inherent Vice and two years later I'm a film student in college and look how we ended up yeah yeah exactly it's it is a crazy movie for sure I saw
1: it I remember this is when I started getting more and more into kind of critiquing movies and looking at movies in a different way I was a junior sophomore junior in high school kind of in that transition period it was 2014 and yeah i was a junior and i remember seeing the trailer for this movie and i was like oh it's paul thomas anderson sign me up cuz i had seen the master <laughs> and the master is still my favorite excuse me it's still my favorite pta movie and i'd seen there will be blood and i was just blown away by both of those movies that i was like i have to go see that and obviously i am a diehard joaquin phoenix fan just like just like you are the man can really do no wrong i love him so much absolutely um and i saw that it was the first novel adapted by uh thomas Pynchon and to be a movie which i thought was really interesting because i mean i hadn't really heard that much about thomas Pynchon other than you know, I'd heard jokes about Gravity's Rainbow, but like other than that, right. I haven't. But I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." He's the first, and I looked up some of his work, and it's like unfilmable, 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 and I was like, "Oh, wow!" So I was instantly intrigued. And I remember this was before I went to when I was going when I started going to film school, and I was doing more analysis, and I didn't really focus on the analysis part when I saw this movie. So it just was just
0: so like I remember it ended, and my stepdad and I were just like, "Huh."
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it's definitely funny that you mentioned the Pynchon novel because mm-hmm. upon coming here to college, I had to write—I um, I, I had to write a book report for uh, one of my screenwriting theory classes, and I had just seen the film at the time, so I figured, you know. Why not? If anything, I could just probably bullshit it, having known that I've seen the movie, and uh, I couldn't. I had to sit down and read the novel all the way through, and that's a credit to both Pynchon and especially Paul Thomas Anderson, because when you look at a lot of the things in this movie, be it the dialogue, obviously the flow of the narrative, the characters, a lot of like beat-for-beat story elements... Ultimately, there are places where everything is like verbatim to the Pynchon novel. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you look at the opening, that opening dialogue between Doc and Shasta, that kind of not only like sets up their relationship and the history they've had, but also gets like the events of the story in motion. Yeah, that is verbatim from the Pynchon novel. And as I was I know, reading like, the, the, the narration for sure, like, straight from it. For mm-hmm. sure. As I was reading the novel, having already seen the film, I thought to myself, this is a completely different experience. And having gone back and rewatched the film again, it is absolutely a credit to Paul Thomas Anderson that they feel like two completely wholesome and en- like you know not one is like really not the same without the other but they feel like solid stories on their own yeah different stylistically that's that's interesting because there's so many times
1: like you know take like any there's so many novels out there like you know works that are just like you you can't film it you just can't it's unfilmable It'll, it'll never get done but there's something about like i mean paul thomas anderson seems like the perfect person to do this mm-hmm. he's an incredible writer and he's an incredible director and it just seems like he knows the genre and this is this is another thing we could talk about is that this movie plays a lot with genre because it's not you know it's not a straight comedy there's a lot of dark humor in it but it's also not really a drama but it's also like a noir it's it's a crazy mix of genre but like also he just rewatching this film i remember it being like confusing and it is confusing but like I was so much more into it while rewatching it last night. And it was like... I don't know. There there was something about it. It was just better the second time. I understood it a little bit more. But I was just into the filmmaking more. And I was noticing things that I'd forgotten about. For sure. And it's just such an odd special movie. That like it's... I don't know. It's just a nice special movie. There's just something about it that it just... It hits me. And there's so
0: many good performances in it. And I don't know. It's such an... It's such a weird film. I can't speak for the rest of PTA's uh, filmography, but I could probably say that Inherent Vice is one of the most surreal films I have ever seen. There are scenes and moments in this movie you are just, you have to see to believe. Um, And Paul Thomas Anderson, what he does is he takes these oddball characters and moments and really this mystery that when you look at it is almost like Coen Brothers, Big Lebowski, Lebowski. Excuse me, uh, big Lebowski esque, and that it doesn't really feel like it's amounting to anything. Right? Yeah, that it's about anything necessarily, and he manages to not only make it compelling but super entertaining. And it's also a film that really gets better with every rewatch, and that you understand more, you notice more things that Anderson kind of lets hang in the background, that alludes to like future story elements. And really, I just having only seen this one film, I could definitely say that PTA was the guy for the job. He, it definitely
1: is not a movie that's like you watch it once and you totally get it it's a multiple viewings kind oh, no. of movie of for not. sure um but it's <sighs> there's so much to talk about <laughs> like i mean let's look, just look at the cast the cast in, just on alone gets you going sure. you got joaquin phoenix josh brolin owen wilson katherine waterston this was the first thing i ever saw her in before steve jobs and fantastic Beasts. eric roberts reese witherspoon when De toro um
0: who am i and maya rudolph and martin short there are so many people you don't know who are in this film uh, for me it was maya rudolph owen mm-hmm. wilson and um, martin short yeah martin, martin short, short just like, show up yeah <laughs> for sure and then when you see them you're so taken off guard by their presence it only it, like you're really kind of like in this vulnerable state where you don't realize you're being fed these fantastic story beats through their amazing performance it, for as i will say for as great as joaquin phoenix is in this movie there are a bunch of other um players in the cast here particularly josh brolin mm-hmm. uh, martin short for the short tenor that he's in it um that just completely run away with every single scene yeah in. absolutely it's a fantastic cast phenomenal. really
1: and it and like we said it's written and directed by paul thomas anderson he knows how to great get good performances out of people mm-hmm. like he He just is so good at, like, he uses his his directing style, too. He's like, this is, you know, a more recent Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and it's very, like, he does a lot with, like, moments and making it feel like this is, this is, like, this is happening now. Yeah. like, and he does such a great job. It makes you feel like you are there. And in that moment, it gets the performances out of the people to be feel more natural. That's a very natural kind of for sure
0: directing style. And it just works. You Um, mentioned earlier that this is a fantastic period piece and it absolutely is. Uh, when we get a little later into like the step-by-step analysis, mm -hmm. um, I really was thinking about how great a period piece this is and how it perfectly encapsulates the transition culturally in, uh, uh, on the west coast and specifically california and the bay area between the late 60s and the early 70s uh when you look at it though <clears throat> and when i wrote this report based on the pension novel uh, in order to really understand both the uh, the film and the novel a little more i had to know more about the cultural context of what was happening when the film takes place i um i didn't i knew pretty little about the Manson murders and uh the kind of this like war on drugs and what was considered to be hippie culture at the time and I think Anderson doesn't really like glorify that or condemn that but really utilizes that so effectively yeah. to kind of just flow right into the narrative and a lot of dialogue especially between um Bigfoot and Doc. Oh yeah, for sure they have and we'll talk about it in a little bit But they have
1: fantastic interactions. They're so good together. Incredible chemistry. Um in addition to in the cast we have we got the music by Johnny Greenwood the guitar player from Radiohead
0: I actually listened to the score um, really
1: good score way right? over here yeah it's awesome uh, then we have the cinematographer is Robert Elswit, who has done like, all of Paul Thomas Anderson's stuff, as well as some stuff for George Clooney. Incredible cinematographer. For sure. Especially for There Will Be Blood. He, they just do... I don't know. They get the colors right in this movie, and the camera movies It just is a
0: great-looking movie. I would know. definitely say, in the case of Inherent Vice, again, as somebody who hasn't seen PTA's other stuff quite yet, um, there is not a single shot in Inherent Vice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and there's not a single shot in Inherent Vice that goes to waste. It is all serving some higher artistic or educational or narrative purpose in this film be that the longing shot at Channel View Estates after um Doc walks into the brothel so you see the strike team kind of formulate in the desert or if it's the lingering shot at the end with Doc and Shasta which we'll talk about a little later Mm -hmm. where the light comes and it goes and it comes and it goes it's very representative of what the movie is fantastic cinematography absolutely
1: um it was made in a budget of. 20 million dollars which is a pretty good for you know it's an it's an obviously an indie movie budget box office return of 14.7 million i don't really think this is a movie that's necessarily fully concerned with its box office revenue really just about making a piece of art and before we get into our scene by scene analysis i i want to ask you because you've read the book why do you think this is a this is something or this is a work whether it's the book or the movie that might turn people away because this movie you know let's look at the if we look at the reviews for the reception it has like a 72 on rotten tomatoes which is really good uh 7.1 out of 10 average and has like an 81 out of 100 on metacritic but there are a lot of other critics who are just like or um, people who in the general public who just could just drift away from this movie. Yeah. What do you think it is about this movie or this work that might bring some people to it
0: and polarize it? So it's, it's a very polarizing piece. I feel like. I, I def yeah. I, I definitely would agree. I remember back in 2014, I knew the film existed. Uh, I hadn't seen it because I was too young, and there were a couple of other things. Um, That kind of prevented me from seeing it at the time. I remember, however, there were people talking online and like this big circulation of uh, cinematic journalism that hated this movie just absolutely like nothing but complete disdain. I've even seen some pieces written in the past when I've tried to do a little background research on this, where people have gone so far as to call this uh, PTA's worst film. I personally couldn't disagree more, but mm-hmm. I think the reason the piece polarizes so many people and kind of like draws them away from it has something to do originally with Pynchon because Pynchon has... Uh, more often than not been quoted as one of the most difficult authors to read. I know that uh, Gravity's Rainbow has like 400 characters in it or something like that. Oh, for sure. Which is insane. For sure. Um, I will also say that despite the fact this movie becomes not only more understandable but more coherent, and I I do feel like coherent is the wrong word there because it is a really well put together mystery, Uh, this film becomes easier to understand with repeat viewings. I can see how the casual moviegoer would be turned off by the first viewing. I mean, the film is very long it's yeah two two 223 or something like something that. something like that and i honestly people not fully invested in the characters and the mystery and the story really aren't gonna have that full investment to kind of like go the distance you know what i mean
1: yeah for sure and, and because of its kind of narrative that seems almost all over the place and that there's so many interwoven parts and a lot of like exposition given that you have to pay attention to you have to pay attention in this movie or you're gonna lose it you just will i can totally see that this is not a movie for everyone it's a like i said it's long it can someone can see it as kind of slow it's just weird Mm -hmm. um but there's something about it that and obviously because i maybe this is like the pretentious film side of me coming out but like there's just something about it that like maybe it's those things that i just kind of love about it because there's it's not it's a very original movie you know it was nominated for costume design and adapted screenplay Mm -hmm. pta was nominated for and i don't know it it just pops out of me as something that's one of the more original
0: movies of the past you know few years you honestly can't deny how special this film is And and even if you can't place your finger on it there's just that like inherent funny enough that inherent quality yeah Uh, About the film that not only makes you enjoy it so much the first time even if you don't necessarily know what the hell is going on But that brings you back for those future rewatches and in understanding it it, I I almost kind of compare it to like an Edgar Wright movie if I can make that transition for a quick second (laughs) Because uh, the first time I saw Hot Fuzz I was eight years old in like 2007 I think and I saw Hot Fuzz for the first time and You know, because I had heard from my friends, oh, it's funny, it's action-packed, it's really smart. And I had seen it. Again, I was only eight years old at the time, but I didn't understand what the hell was going on in it but I definitely knew there was something special about it so I kept watching it, and I kept watching it and I kept watching it and that really is like I hope the same effect that Inherent Vice has on people I hope it almost has that like Edgar Wright effect that not only do you <clears throat> love it for an intrinsic reason the first time around but you keep re-watching it and noticing things and you're kind of like more. um more so, kind of like a Blade Runner.
1: Abso- oh, absolutely, like a Blade Runner. Yeah. Um. I I, just, I remember the thing with me is that when I because f- I don't know rewatching it, I'm like so happy it was like years later, you know. Because if I just rewatched, I feel like if I I went to see it when I was 16, and then if I just seen it again, maybe just another year or less later, I would have the same opinion. It was like, yeah, it was it was good i don't know i just you know but i now like just rewatching. i don't know if it was just because i've seen weirder stuff maybe that's what it was i've seen weirder stuff yes that isn't like this like is the gold this was anymore. like oh okay interesting yeah you know i've seen you know i've seen a racer head now and then, yeah. like I, this isn't that this isn't that bad but i don't know i i was captivated <laughs> Why don't we go scene by scene and talk about you know, what we like, what we don't like. We'll talk about the story, if we can follow it, sure. and uh, talk about just everything that sticks out to you, something you like, something that you don't like. Great. Sounds awesome. So, we open on this. Um, we're in 1970 in Gordita Beach, which is a fictional fictional town mm-hmm. in uh, in California. We uh, we see, what's the narrator's name? Um, I have it. Sort... Tilege or something? Uh, sort of. Yes. She we see like her on the beach and she's narrating. That was an interesting choice. Just that one shot. Mm-hmm. You know, where you see her and she pops up a couple times um, throughout. But we meet um Doc at his home. Uh, and he's, you know, just he's this worn-out stoner guy, and he's a private eye. And I I have to say And I don't think we can. We should start off any other way by saying how great Joaquin Phoenix is in this movie. Absolutely. So good. I mean, like, he's. His character is just perfect for him. He's so funny. And he's such a great stoner. And he looks so kind of just like. You know, just with the time, yeah, but he's, he's got
0: like that, like almost like shaggy uh, professionalist look yeah, to like him. like mutton
1: chops almost. <laughs> and But he also is so smart. Like honestly, like he's a very smart detective. He's
0: very good at what he does and that's proven Extremely. throughout
1: the film. Yeah, Um but he gives one of the best performances I've ever seen from him. Nothing. I don't think he'll top the master or walk the line, but here he is just... Dynamite. He is on every single scene. He brings
0: it with his dialogue. With his his, he is a king of delivery. Absolutely, a f- just master of delivery. When you look at Doc, ultimately in this film, Doc is in the same boat that we're in. As he's kind of like this aimless wanderer, like burnout renegade. And I don't even want to say burnout, but just like once was a little bit more professional than what he is now. Uh, he's still a very accomplished <clears throat> and very talented PI uh, in the world. That um pta sets up here but th- it's he gets one of the greatest character introductions in this film and that he doesn't really get an introduction he's kind of just hanging out on his couch yeah. smoking pot and watching tv but that's a perfect introduction
1: because he's just like i don't know he builds he just can you continue to build with this character and i love that you see it through his perspective everything mm-hmm. happens Like, we see everything happen the way he sees it happen, Mm -hmm. which I love. And that is a kind of a thing that I want to, I'll put into analysis for a little bit later. But he's the perfect um, protagonist for this movie. And I don't know that he's just such an interesting character that you kind of think like, oh, this guy's an idiot. But, like, then you keep going. You're like, actually, he's actually really smart. Like, he knows what he's doing. He also cares a lot. Absolutely. He's got a lot of compassion. He knows when shit's
0: not right. Um, And you're just with him. There are a number, funny, I, uh, you mentioned the compassion. There are a number of uh, plot threads in this movie that ultimately involves Doc working a case for someone else. We'll talk a little bit later about uh, Coy Harlinger, uh, mm-hmm. who's Owen Wilson's character. He's ultimately um, recruited by his wife to find him when he's uh, talking to um, Puck Beaverton's sister. And there are all these people that approach Doc in need of some help who are in some way connected to the whole uh, yeah. you know, case with the Golden Fang and Mickey Wolfman's disappearance. Yeah, uh, and it's through scenes like that, and through interactions that he has with people, that you see that like there's more, there's way more to Doc uh, than you know than Just what the you're originally stoner. shown on the surface. Mm-hmm. And honestly, what you're shown on the surface is pretty compelling in and yeah. of itself.
1: Um, so in that first scene, then we also meet Shasta Faye, um, played by Catherine Waterston. Really, really good performance from her too. I, am a big fan of hers. I think she's awesome. Um, especially in Steve Jobs. She's but great she, in Steve Jobs. Yeah. She's, um, and we'll get more into her character. Um, but she comes in and she says that she's cur- her current lover, Mickey Wolfman. Uh, there's a plot to kidnap him and put him in in a local insane asylum, mm-hmm. which that, in and of itself, is such a crazy plot line. It's
0: just so unique that you can't help but give it a second look and be drawn Yeah. Uh, speaking to Catherine Waterston, she's f- fantastic um, in Steve Jobs. This, however, is far and beyond my favorite Catherine Waterston performance. She... Ultimately, when you look at the movie and like scale of like its runtime and stuff like that, she's not in the movie for very long. But every scene that she's in, be it the present or various flashback yeah. scenes that Doc has, she's just so hypnotic in the way that she acts. And That's she a perfect word to describe dem- it, hypnotic. She Absolutely. Demands the audience's attention to whatever's going on or to whatever larger message is being told about the scene that she's in or whoever she's sharing the scene. She's phenomenal. She is movie. really, really good. So he so Doc
1: obviously has to take the case. The dialogue in this movie is so good. It's so PTA. It's so just, there's something about it that feels natural, but it's also just so crazy. Because if you read it on paper, you're just like, no one says this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying no one says this. And then you watch it, and it just feels so natural. And it almost feels like everyone in this world Says says it. Absolutely. And... They're just so like it's laid back, but then there's energy. It's
0: all over the place, and it's so great. I love it. Um, I truly think if there was like a match made in heaven as far as writers for two different medium go, it's Thomas Pynchon and Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm, because, because he makes dialogue that's not only seems authentic for the narrative and for the larger scope of the film, but again, at list it's what people would say at the time. I can't really say that I use words like groovy, you know, too often, Mm -hmm. and really nobody did at the turn of the 60s into the 70s, because again, hippie culture was kind of dying out. But just the dialogue in this movie is so phenomenal and uh be that through um the narration or just the interactions that the character have characters have with each other i will say the one thing that i took away from this film and paul thomas anderson's ability to write the one thing i took away most is as, as a screenwriter is the way that paul thomas anderson has his characters talk to one another mm-hmm. there are so many fantastic interactions between characters oh, in this yes. movie. i can't pick a favorite i really can't either there's so many i will say and in the beginning, um, the back and forth between Shasta and Doc while they set that up is again verbatim from the pension novel. oh interesting. And uh Sordelage's narration is there in the novel too. She has a really great line in there that says tonight she
1: was all in flatland gear, hair a lot shorter than he remembered, looking just like she swore she had never she she swore she'd never look. And I don't know. There's
0: something about the narration in this movie that just is so poetic and is so well done. Absolutely. I love it. It symbolizes mm-hmm. like her transition from this like lower what was seen as kind of ultimately like this lesser lifestyle into the higher elitist like darker world of Mickey Wolfman. There's another great line there about the fact that she wasn't wearing like a swimsuit bottom and like a country joe and the blowfish t-shirt mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that and I really think that the narration it's feeding you the it's it, it's feeding you the themes uh, like you know it's feeding you the story's themes and a lot of things that intrinsically help you care more about these characters yeah and you don't even realize it that's the best part mm-hmm. about all of it
1: yeah it just sounds like really cool dialogue it is and so then the story continues and we've so uh, mickey wolfman is one of the biggest like real estate developers at the time and uh he and doc calls his aunt am- uh his aunt and and is saying that he is um that wolfman wants to become a nazi and he has like like he has the uh neo-nazis like with him with the motorcycles and That's you're just aunt
0: that goes like heavy on the makeup right yeah and she's right for the like, got
1: the curlers and she's going like pattern her fucking face and he's like yeah he's well associated with the white supremacists as well as a lot of criminals and the story just builds and builds and builds and builds and then you know doc meets um michael kenneth uh, williams character from the wire uh tariq um khali mm-hmm. he's the black panther member yeah. who says that uh, is he says
0: he knew uh oh glenn charlock that's when charlock because they were in chino together i will say in relation to the whole introduction of the aryan brotherhood thing and the black panther party this movie originally when i had heard aryan brotherhood so early on in the film i almost felt as like I was being thrown a curveball way too early. Yeah. And then they introduce oh, there's the Black Panthers, and then there's the Golden Fang, and then there's the FBI, and then there's the LAPD. I felt like too many plot threads were being stacked on me at once initially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when you realize how well they all connect, you think, Oh, okay. That obviously, like, it really just helps, again, tie it together on future viewings when you have, like, kind of that sense of the larger picture. But I'd also be lying if I said there wasn't a little bit of curiosity that came with, oh, he's part of the Aryan Brotherhood in a time where after World War II was predominantly over. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know much about culture in the '60s and '70s, still, even with the little background research I did. But I have to imagine there were still people who believed in that mentality.
1: I'd imagine. I mean, there still are today.
0: So yeah, definitely absolutely. for sure.
1: Um, and Tariq tells Doc that they're uh, they're tearing down like the neighborhood to get in way for the Channel View Estates. Channel that's View a, Estates. That's a big. Um, that's Wolfman's big. Big thing. And Doc's kind of a little iffy on this, but he goes to check it out. And this is one of my favorite scenes of the movie. He goes to Channel View Estates and he's driving past. Um, the cops when or all the motorcycle gang when they're leaving and then he goes inside and when he goes inside you see them all run a little bit closer yeah. to him in the distance and this scene is just a perfect introduction to the humor because there's like six different things that happen in this scene that I just find completely hysterical absolutely and so he goes in and he meets Jade who's a great character I love yeah. Jade Jade's awesome played by um, Hong Chao who is fantastic um, and they and she goes welcome to uh where they had the at pussy eaters right and there's yeah the, it was like the uh, those, like pleasure girls
0: massage palace or yeah something like and that. there's
1: like they're doing a special on eating pussy for 14.95 and she's like are you a, are you a cop and he's like no and he goes well if if you're a cop we can give you a special discount or a special sneak preview of the pussy. and he's a like, like well, well, this PI. <laughs> is PI. <laughs> so great and then so the one girl comes out what's her name uh Uh, Bambi. Bambi, right. And they come out and she goes down on her and Doc's just like, uh, what? I I thought, uh, (laughs) oh, oh okay and then he just fucking and the door behind them is like boobs and then her vagina
0: and that the little door opens it's just like not only is it hysterical and something that i completely regret watching with you know without like the volume down on my tv um but uh it's also something that is very representative of how like sexually open artistically people were becoming in the 60s and 70s Mm -hmm. uh the door is actually for his you know, prominent as it is in the shot. I didn't notice it until the second time <laughs> I watched this movie. And it really like it takes you off guard. And it just it makes you vulnerable almost to the point where you don't see, uh you know, Glenn hitting or I, I believe it's Glenn around the corner that hits Doc on the head. Is it? I think so. I'm not
1: sure. But I love that scene because mm-hmm. I remember that was always in the trailer and it still cracked me up last <laughs> night. He hits him in the head and he
0: turns him around. And as he's falling, it looks like he tries to Punch, right, but then right. it just
1: goes down
0: and um, it's so great i mentioned earlier i actually found a similarity to that scene um for those that don't know any listeners uh, who might be fans of the nerd writer who's a video yeah nerd writer mm-hmm. yeah um he has a uh, he has a great video essay uh i believe it's called movie violence done right where he talks about like kind of the pulpy noir genre flicks written by a gentleman by the name of shane black who wrote kiss kiss bang bang love shane black the nice yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really feel that not only that specific moment, which is hilarious, but a lot of the violence in this film, it's awkward and it's messy and it's like perfectly suited for the kind of film yeah. that we're watching. It's almost like that scene in Kiss, Kiss. Have you seen Kiss Kiss? I have. Yes, yeah.
1: It's like the scene where Robert Downey Jr. puts one bullet in the gun, but he ends up shooting the guy yeah, anyway. He shoots yeah. <laughs> So Doc wakes up and he's laying next to Charlotte's dead body and there's a bunch of policemen and we get introduced to my second favorite character in this movie next to Doc. And that is Lieutenant Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornson, easily one of Bjornsson. the longest character names ever. <laughs> so played perfectly perfectly by josh brolin this
0: might actually be my favorite josh brolin
1: i may have performance. to agree with you and i'm a big goonies fan yeah but. <laughs> for sure.
0: he is just i i would say even more so, like if i had to pick one Um, Actor in this entire cast That I feel just completely steals The movie runs away Right to the end zone with every scene they're in It's absolutely Josh Brolin He kills it there are so many Great scenes and moments and Lines that he has in this movie And it really just it fuses So well with the kind of movie that You're watching ultimately everything about this Film fuses perfectly And I think it's that energy and That charisma that Josh Brolin brings To the character of Bigfoot Bjornsson that is it's it just makes it all the better, honestly. Yeah. Um And he is just so
1: funny. He is so and they so he goes and he's like, Wake up, hippie and so they take him in and um I don't know if it's when they're driving to the station when Josh Brolin's eating the chocolate banana. No, that's after that's they, they, uh, after okay let well, him out of the impound. Yeah, okay, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so they go back and, you know, uh Josh Brolin is just this hippie-hating, you know, stereotypical cop, um, who is just so over the top and ridiculous. I feel like he's like a mixture of the two, of the two time periods because he's like so ridiculous and crazy. He has some hippie qualities to him, mm-hmm. but then he also is like he's the straight cop man, you know, For sure. um, and he's like he's like putting his finger in his hand he's like yeah you you missed that is that what they were doing right yeah Yeah. and and, oh my god he's just so
0: and even like Doc is just like what the fuck (laughs) he's just so like what are you doing you know it's actually really great you mentioned the whole uh, like the transition between the two time periods because PTA actually uses the fact that this movie more or less takes place in between the end of one decade and the start of another to do a lot of great things with not only the themes and the plot but also the character and especially bigfoot who's kind of got like that divide in him behind Mm -hmm. all like the lunacy and the comedic timing and like the hardened lapd grit and you obviously learn what the reason for that is later but i think it just serves so it it it, it really is one of the best character introductions i've ever seen because you see that before he was an uh LAPD officer Um, actually before he was a detective um, Doc is seen watching old uh, television reruns where he was uh, like pretty much an extra in the background on like these cheesy campy like uh, cop detective shows and uh, he also watches a commercial that Bigfoot's in for used cars or for real estate I believe it's Mickey Wolfman real estate actually Mm -hmm. and you see uh, Bigfoot and he just looks into the camera and I I don't know if this was actually in the commercial or if Doc was just hallucinating this but you see him look at you know look right at the camera and say what's up Doc and then when he runs back into Doc at the Channel View Estates first thing he yells over his door is hey what's up Doc and I feel that the lot that's not the only time that lines come back in this movie um but I feel it just it really 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 works uh, you mentioned the conversation where brolin won't stop putting his finger in a uh, balled up fist there's a great exchange that they have uh, bigfoot asks him do you think they're you know f-u-c-k-i-n-g-ing okay. and the then fucking-ing? Doc goes fucking-ing. <laughs> 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 and then they just completely just move on to the next sentence like nothing it's so just
1: off the rails but they they don't i like that they don't acknowledge shit like that that's a big thing with this movie they don't acknowledge weird things that happen you just have to accept it and move on um and then we meet uh benicia del toro's character sanche sanche who's great benicia del toro is awesome for sure and he's uh
0: is he uh like for the coast guard or something like that i believe he's a lawyer for marine law. Yeah, because uh-huh. like he kind of works as Doc's like unofficial like law consultant in this case yeah yeah so he, he works as a lawyer for marine law and he comes in and he basically because what the uh, lapd is led to believe at first is that uh as doc wakes up next to glenn charlock who's been killed at the channel view estates the lapd believes that doc killed glenn charlock right. and basically so and comes and bails him out and all says like ultimately hmm. you if you're not going to charge my client with anything let him yeah. go yeah
1: and wolfman has disappeared at this point yes. so now that's that kicks everything into motion there's another great quote that i have to get to that before we move uh, uh, Bigfoot's looking at his papers and he goes I've decided I'm going to kick Mr. Sportello and Sancho goes you're going to kick him that's assault that's assault <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and then Doc kind of moves over And in like all, like this, pl- this Continued like camaraderie With Bigfoot he leans back over and he goes No Sancha I think that's kind of just like police Vernacular it means they're going to let me go <laughs> uh, And I really like just in that Short time you understand It's it's the same way with Doc and Shasta It's normal dialogue It's not expositioning and it's not Really like presumptuous or condescending But in that normal dialogue That's actually really entertaining You understand that not only do these characters have great rapport and great chemistry, but they also have a history. You can yeah. definitely tell that there is a. Past there's a there's Zico relationships.
1: Yeah, there's relationships there. When, and when he's like, "No, I think it's like police vernacular I think they're gonna let me go. I'm just doing my job, doc. <laughs> just doing my job, doc." And he just say, he almost says it to like himself, and he's like looking up. You know, he's like
0: just fucking goddamn it. You know? And it's at that point we are now introduced to uh,
1: the banana scene. The banana scene is brilliant. It's no words are said. It's one shot. And they're driving in the car, and uh, Bigfoot is eating a chocolate-covered banana. Like and a it, frozen banana. Almost, yeah, right? and it's focused. He's kind of out of focus, but Doc is in focus. And you just see him, like, for a solid minute, just very uncomfortable looking at Bigfoot. <laughs> and it is fucking...
0: Old. It doesn't really take a genius to figure out the way that Bigfoot might suggestively be eating a frozen banana. Yeah. And I think the decision to have the camera focus on Doc. Mm. And ultimately, like if you could if you want to say that Doc is weirded out by what uh, Bigfoot is doing, focus on him for maybe five the scene is drawn out for the better part of, I want to say at least like 15, 20 seconds. And you're not only like the more that set like the more that scene sets in, not only is that like the funnier it becomes but like the more resonant of like Do- of what doc's feeling and like kind of this like unspoken like repressed insanity that bigfoot is going through i just i think paul thomas anderson's choice to drag out the scene and like prolong i think it's just brilliant it's so funny it's just
1: so yeah it's there's nothing i would change about that Absolutely. That, that, that one shot um so next this the the story gets even thicker we meet um hope harling uh harlingan Harlingen,
0: hope Har- harling harlingan yes Harlingen, there, there's yeah there's an end at the end
1: yeah it's weird um who is calling on doc because her um husband coy played by owen wilson is supposed to be um missing she was said to be dead right but it's not it wasn't really confirmed and sh- they were heroin addicts together and i love how fucked up she is yeah like not like she's not like drug she's crazy she's insane and their dialogue in the scene there's so many great moments where she's just like oh i'm a i'm a drug counselor now <laughs> yeah. drug oh really yeah i teach kids how to use drugs safely you know you got to start them use early and it's properly. like oh my god and she's like yeah and here's our um you know we the baby was starting to look really bad and doc takes the photo and he just goes ah <laughs> and he's screaming mm-hmm. yep. yeah <laughs>
0: um You know, again, kind of speaks to that whole like decade transition thing where a lot of people were just so like jacked up on heroin out of their mind in the 60s and now kind of like that remission that she. not remission like that kind of like rehab that she's in the fact that she's gone clean now it's really just like that fade out of the haze into the more like corrective like you know more orderly 70s and I, I get that she's one of many characters that that transition is very evident in uh it's also just a great scene especially the moment where she hands doc the picture and she says yeah that was our baby at one year old and he, he screams and he's like oh yeah yep. no, that, 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 that's
1: yep. great <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Um, and so she's missing and the reason that she thinks he's alive is uh because of like a a large sum that was put into her account at Mm -hmm. the bank and so she doesn't really know who would do that and so but doc then gets word that that koi is still alive and they meet up in uh in like the alley after he talks to jade Mm -hmm. and jade says you know beware the golden fang and Oh, so now we're like, hmm, what's the golden fang? You know, what that that," it just the story is so layered. There's like just so many different things going on. I don't know if that's necessarily a a fault, just because I think that adds like to the complexity and good writing. But it's also one of those things where it's like, I know I have to pay attention, but there's a lot, you know, and, and it's very easy to miss something, if, you know,
0: if you're not paying like laser focus attention, chances are you're going to miss something and you're going to get lost at some point. Yeah, I admittedly did on the on the first. Uh,
1: I still did. Re-watching and it. it was easier for me the second time. But there was a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on. For and sure. sometimes if it's like cause then I have to focus on, because I can only, sometimes I can only focus on what's going on necessarily in that scene, but then you have to relate it back to like all this other stuff. Um, but we find out that Koi is actually a police informant. Mm -hmm. Um, And his big thing is that he, and this is also a really good um, usage of long takes. Um, Paul Paul Thomas Anderson likes to use very long takes and he'll slowly creep in to the conversation as it goes on for two minutes. It makes the dialogue just feel so natural and um, we're invested because we we can't break our focus. For sure. You know, you're just in. And
0: um, Doc doesn't tell him that, he went to go see his wife. No, no, he just tells him that he'll go and like kind of scout the place out. Like not because we, you know, the audience know that he's actually already gone. Like Hope called him and he's seen his, I don't remember what his baby's name it starts with like an A or something. Right. Like amethyst. I believe the baby's name is. Yeah, I thought something. Yeah. Something like something that. Something along those lines. Absinthe. And, <laughs> um, and we know something that, uh, coy, And that kind of just like it really helps us feel that detective's intuition and like that detective's knowledge alongside Doc. Um, I will say reading the novel and watching the film. um, It's great to kind of progress through this the first time at a very slow pace, but also taking the time to figure out what pieces to what and what connects to where uh, because you ultimately feel like you're solving this at the same time that Doc is. I feel that some of the best protagonists I mean, really, anybody would feel that some of the best protagonists are ones that we can relate to, and while we're not necessarily like middle aged washed up stoner p i s we definitely feel ultimately like we're taking this journey with doc, this journey like from one insane moment and visit and personality after the next um and I think the introduction of koi's subplot in this movie kind of brings us back down from the fact that there's like a larger drug syndicate conspiracy going on here we're ultimately just in a missing persons case but then again here's a whole connection to the fbi and then you find out what the fbi knows later which we'll get into um it really just like it does so much in one scene but ultimately on your first viewing it might do a little too much if, if that makes any it's, sense yeah it, it just it hits you
1: um you're just thrown in and you're kind of expected to catch up um and we'll i think we'll talk I think I have a reasoning for all of this that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but back to the story. Um, after we meet Coy, um, he go, uh, Doc goes to... This is a great sequence. When he goes to Wolfman's Estates uh, residence and um, goes and... In, uh, not interrogates, but he goes to uh, talk to Sloane, uh, his wife. Mickey Wolfman's wife, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he was saying that like you know we want you to get your um he's like a patent lawyer he's he's impersonating some form of a lawyer just to like kind of snoop around and he's saying you're gonna get your refund back and um there's a great scene when like one of the girls comes over and puts a drink down and then steps right in front of joaquin phoenix and leans down and you can hear the tone of his voice yeah he's like "Uh, yeah so (laughs) it's it's just so and like they're saying like you know it's you see, in the narrations like you see the police are hard at work and they're having a fucking barbecue and like <laughs> jumping in the pool, and then so he like branches off and he goes in and finds that this there's a closet that is just wall to wall with ties and they're like all of on are just naked women. It's just like.
0: Wow, yeah, <laughs> like, It's definitely bizarre. Very, um, very bizarre. I also want to point out, uh, that when doc is originally talking to Sloan, she mentions, um, that they've just opened up like this new me- like a mental health clinic. And, uh, she makes reference to, uh, kriskylodon which is the mental facility that doc visits a little later on mm-hmm. in the film and there's a great line again we'll get to all, we'll get to the scene a little later but there's a great line where sloan like misinterprets the meaning of kriskylodon saying it's like an ancient indian word for like serenity or something but in fact it, it's actually like a greek word an ancient greek word for like animal tooth and i th- again there's the whole dialogue comes back later on in the film and i think that's just a really great touch Uh, it's something that i definitely noticed on a second viewing though i like it just totally went over my head the first time yeah um for sure uh and the scene in the
1: in the closet where he's talking to the one girl and she puts the tie and then they kiss and then he walks away and he's just like another time another (laughs) time uh and doesn't he go back after he leaves like the house he gets like the shit kicked out of him by josh brolin or is that a different moment uh
0: this scene i still don't exactly understand and they call back to this and later in the film when they're talking about doc and bigfoot's relationship but seeing as how the lapd is at you know at that sloan's house um wolfman not wolfman uh bigfoot and another detective are waiting in a squad car outside and doc runs out of the house and jumps on bigfoot's hood uh like the hood of his car to which bigfoot then all in slow motion in in slow motion i I gotta ask what's your take on that scene i like it i'm not really sure why exactly it
1: happens per se um probably just something that kind of take the edge off i guess um but i think it's a really funny scene the fact that there's this cool the score is playing and it's very you know kind of over the top with its kind of classical nature and he's getting the shit kicked out of him i personally thought that that was funny
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i loved it it's a great scene Mm
1: -hmm. um and I think this is also when he goes back to the, um, when he goes back to the police station. Um, no, that's a little bit later. We'll talk about that later. Um, so then we get introduced to Reese Witherspoon's character. I'm a huge Reese Witherspoon fan, um, and her, she's a deputy DA. I mean, her name is Penny, and they have a discussion on the this like park bench. Another long take, slowly creeping in. Um, and uh, you know she's you know asking about all the shit that's been happening and you know they say that the fbi think that obviously he that doc had killed um charlotte because he was the only one there and he was like you know doped up and and he's like you know when are you not smoking he's like my smoking has been lessened you know recently or has gotten in the way of work you know she asks
0: him when's the last time and he goes i don't know i gotta check the logbook yeah (laughs) Um, I will say the scene that comes after this, where we learn that ultimately Kimble brought him, uh, or it's not uh, Penny, is it Kimble. Penny Kimble. Penny Kimble. Mm-hmm. Penny Kimble. Okay, I thought it was Kimble, like the Red Sox mm-hmm. pitcher. Um, when she brings him back to the uh, the station, um, Doc is stopped and interrogated by the FBI. This scene struck me as really interesting because mm-hmm. it's another one of those like surrealist in tranquil moments. Uh, ultimately, as the FBI continue to question him and things get more tense and a little weirder, the FBI agents throughout the room, you don't notice it at first because just the agents in the back start to do it. At a point, everybody starts picking their nose uh, <laughs> yeah. while they're talking to Doc. And I almost took this. One as, of the guys on the on the left is on uh, Veep, the yeah. show on HBO. Yeah. Oh, no kidding? Really? Mm-hmm so the fbi scene um i just i thought that was funny because when you look at it ultimately when they're picking their nose it's symbolic of the fact that ultimately all their hands are dirty and like this corruption Mm -hmm. scandal and um if i can allude to edgar wright's baby driver for just a second um i will say that uh over the summer i was watching baby this was right after baby driver had come out i was watching it with friends and um Kevin Spacey's character in that movie who funny enough is also named Doc I believe uh constantly alludes to informants who have a nasal problem mm. and my friend watching the film I was like the film person in my friends back home at the time had asked me like what the hell does that mean and I just kept I truly didn't know and then someone over on our right goes oh it means he's got a coke problem and you see uh one of the FBI agents in the back um ultimately kind of like uh like wiping his nose Mm -hmm. a little bit kind of representative of the fact that they're uh wrapped up in this scandal with a drug cartel and they've been sampling the product
1: yeah and it's really funny there's like the banter is fun because doc like just doesn't respect them and then like they're like he's just constantly making fun of them and uh, like he goes and leaves in the wrong door, and then it's locked, and then he leaves again. And they flip him off, and it's just they were
0: saying, like, you know, they weren't they were like offering him a job if he like talks or something like that. It's really another scene where Joaquin Phoenix is just like he he, he does his thing and he brings it and all of like those weird, awkward interactions that Joaquin has. I love the gag where he goes through the wrong door and Mm -hmm. even kind of like lingers on it for a second, almost as if like he meant to do that. Yeah. And then the whole like peace sign and flip him off as he walks out the door is great. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. The golden fang is actually the name of a boat as we've been, as we were told by Benicio del Toro, that it was in the Bermuda Triangle for like 50 years and then they're looking at the boat like from offshore and so now you're kind of thinking like why would you have to be afraid of that and even says that why did you want me to be afraid of the boat you know Mm -hmm. and we get another interaction with um coy harrington and we were learned that you know he was one who kind of like he was kind of in the communist um craze for a while and now obviously like we said he's an informant Then we get another good um, narration scene with the... They're talking about the scene with the the Ouija board. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about that scene, obviously with the narration just being so beautiful and well-written... The scene itself is just so well made between Joaquin Phoenix and Catherine uh, Waterston. They're like playing with a Ouija board and then a number comes up and they call and it's clearly just a number to bust, you know, dope heads, but they go running and they don't find anything and they're just running around in the rain and just being so cl- It's such a, I don't know, there's something about that scene that's very whimsical
0: and cute and I love it. It's a fantastic scene that not only deepens the relationship that you know uh, Doc and Shasta once had, but it also helps allude later to when Doc goes back to the actual, um like spot of where the Ouija board day happened because Shasta leaves him the postcard that asks, you know, do you remember the day with the Ouija board? And he goes back to that exact spot. And in once was like, I believe it was the vacant parking lot at the time that doc and Shasta went running. Mm-hmm. Now it's the golden Fang enterprises where, you know, the tax evading dentists all, yep. all all have their offices, which is
1: a great transition scene. Cause it goes from literally that rainy day into present day. And this is where we meet uh Dr. Rudy blatinoid um played by martin short martin short really is so really fantastic. great great quick he's not in the movie very long no. but he has a very good crazy classic martin short performance he was like he was a really good casting choice for that um uh I don't remember what exactly does he get like any information
0: he goes to blatinoid's office um and he basically discovers that um that uh, that the golden fang isn't uh just a bow or say necessarily an indo-chinese heroin cartel but it's also this like society the syndicate he says of uh tax evading dentists um and there's the whole introduction of japonica fenway who doc recognizes from an earlier case and then that plot thread comes back way towards the end right, um, right. and we learn basically that the golden fang isn't necessarily one entity one thing and that confuses us and also intrigues us and brings us into the story more um also martin short i I, if, if i had to classify almost every character in this movie as one thing i'd probably say insane But Martin Short, in the short time that he's in this movie, is, like, the most, like, psychotically insane. He is. He is just so So eccentric and off the wall, mm -hmm. even in, like, the tiniest mannerisms and what he says. I really can't say enough about how fantastic he is in this movie. Yeah, he's, and, like, when the girl comes in
1: and he runs away and, like, as he's running, takes his pants off and then he leaves. And, you know, they're doing cocaine And then when they start driving, you know, they get pulled over and he starts freaking out in the back. And my favorite line is like, anyone uh, with long hair, any more than three people in a car is now automatically considered a cult. And they're like, what? (laughs) The
0: qualifications are... Like long blonde hair or uh, longer hair. shoulder length hair, quoting the book of revelations, which Japonica does when the officer comes to the car. Uh, She asks if he's the great beast. And then um, the third one is... uh, I don't remember what the third one is but yeah it's just it's a great scene where Martin Short especially is great in it because like his over the top paranoia works really well
1: and yeah so they're like worried about Manson and all that he's like oh is it Manson again you know (laughs) um, but they get away they're fine Um, but the next day we get another really great um, phone call because earlier we got the phone call from uh, Bigfoot saying that um, Shasta, Shasta was missing but he's like she's gone man I mean she's missing and it's there like are of great, it, there are a ton of great yeah. phone conversations and between so Bigfoot and Doc now Bigfoot uh, calls him and says that you know uh, Bladenoid has been killed um, and he has like fang bites or whatever but then they meet in the Japanese, restaurant, the Japanese with pancake the, restaurant with the pancakes there's a lot of really great lines in here my favorite has to be when he's saying uh, when Bigfoot's like something about the the bite he's like if you know it's basic forensics maybe if you weren't you know getting busy high in the bathroom you would have known that and he's like you would have known that actually um gold is not fully gold it's actually with copper now if you weren't too busy stealing the hubcaps off a car and blaming it on some hippie you would have known that and yeah. it's like such a great back and forth parallel there's great banter
0: between the two of them and i just it's also another another scene where josh Brolin is given a lot of room to do his thing and kind of like he's this surrealist character. Uh, Just the entire scene, the first time I saw this movie, the one thing I uh f- I, the one thing I couldn't help but focus on is the fact that he keeps asking for more pancakes in his really like crappy yeah. Japanese mm-hmm. um and he's just moto panakeku. moto panakeku, and um he just he keeps asking for it over and over and over yeah. again almost as if he's in the his chef's like house. all right it's coming yeah <laughs> and then uh, he looks at doc and he says uh the pancakes here aren't as good as my mom's but I come here for, for the, the respect. respect it's a oh. hilarious line it's just got that other dynamic property where you know there's something something underlying to yeah it's kind of gross for sure it's just like uh i don't know about
1: that you know um but yeah great to add to his character and then so the whole thing is we find out that there's um we talked about puck beaverton um his character came up a little bit earlier um in the film and he was he was one of wolfman's bodyguards that there might be a connection between him and Coy. There's a lot going on at this There's point at the yeah, there's so much. It's crazy. Doesn't he then go to the uh the
0: mental like not the the Yeah, then he goes to the help facility. He goes to a Chris Skylodon facility in um Ohio, California. Yeah.
1: And so he's posing as another doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he technically is a doctor, right. but like uh he's posing as uh you know he's and then they're walking around and showing him all this stuff and i love when they go into the movie theater and it's like this is a personal favorite of all the patients and they're just fucking
0: just dead faced you know i will say the marathon he says the marathon that they're showing in the theater is a burke stodger marathon that's right and burke stodger uh came up a little earlier when sanj and doc were talking about the golden fang and about how burke stodger was actually the original owner of the golden fang and how he had disappeared uh because of like the communist blacklist in hollywood and then was brought back and doing another movie about communism and i just really think the way paul thomas anderson ties stuff like that together you're obviously not going to notice that on your first viewing i i didn't and like really just kind of like one throwaway line about Burke dodger when uh Sanch and doc are talking but i really think like that just helps tie the mystery together all the more yeah and it also kind of shows
1: like paul thomas anderson's like deep love of film you Absolutely. know and deep knowledge of film uh, and then
0: plus there's a great moment where the uh the doctor just like quotes along with, yeah he's with just with the mouthing the, the
1: words which is just he's such a weird guy um and we see the guy that's puck beaverton the guy with a swastika on his face it's like that man has, has a swastika on his face uh no i believe it's an old uh, hindu saying and it's just <laughs> for, like for, for oh peace and serenity peace yeah, and, serenity, yeah. Um, and it's and he's like oh okay
0: um uh, interesting i just want you to know that that man is not a representative of our employees oh yet. god he's also it's wearing so cool. uh, shasta's tie because wolfman has the yeah that's right of ties. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah um and we see koi is there um as well and my favorite moment in this entire scene is it's so small but there's something about it that just feels so natural and so funny it's after that and he's walked and he sees that they're taking um uh what's his name wolfman there they see that they're escorting him somewhere and there's a wide shot of the lobby and the doctors are walking, talking to Doc and they turn to go to the front door and Doc just keeps on walking <laughs> and they're still talking as he walks out the door. That's And I was phenomenal. just, I, I completely forgot about that and I lost it re-watching it. I just thought that that was, so, he just keeps, just the way he's like, he's got his arms crossed and his like, nothing changes. He just keeps on going. He doesn't stop. But he gets, he manages to go speak to Wolfman and he's saying that, um, Wolfman's clearly been brainwashed at this point. Yeah. He's being um, held by the FBI. Yeah he's saying that like um, he kind of thinks that what he's done is he feels kind of regretful
0: about what he did, and like he was saying like, "Go home, little hippie like where 's Shawsta and he doesn 't get his answer yeah he 's honestly been made to feel so guilty by the FBI and the people that have him about that he 's built a career and a fortune off charging people for real estate, and there 's a line in there I believe where he says i 've charged people to live, but ultimately i didn 't realize that it was supposed to be free, mm-hmm. and there 's the mention earlier in the film of the fact that he wanted to build some like housing complex out in the middle of the desert that people could live in for free. And you really just kind of see at this point when we've found Mickey Wolfman and there's really not much else to do with Mickey Wolfman as far as the narrative is concerned at that point, the story just becomes about going, finding Shasta and what's going on with the golden Fang and not necessarily Mickey Wolfman anymore. We kind of just like see the resolution, his, uh, his, his end of the story there. Yeah. And
1: so But then this whole story continues to change as Doc goes back, and he's at home, and Shasta just shows up. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing it in the theater and just being like, "What? That never happens. Yeah, that you don't see that ever. Ballsy move on for for Paul Thomas Anderson because you know that like because you've basically just alleviated everything, Uh all suspense and all like." You know, but it's a it's an interesting it's a very interesting choice.
0: It does a lot. Again, I feel what this movie does best is ultimately makes you vulnerable Mm -hmm. for the sake of kind of like, you know, uh, portraying its uh, more powerful themes uh, kind of under the surface. Catherine Waterston in this scene, um, and and she ultimately has to act against the backdrop of Doc talking on the foot with um, or not talking on the foot, talking on the phone uh, with Bigfoot. Uh, and how he's saying, oh, your girl Shasta's back in town when clearly she's right yeah. there. And is, isn't this when his like, wife is yelling at him? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and there's also a great scene where Bigfoot's wife uh, starts yelling at Doc, again, kind of like alluding to this perfectly broken family life that Bigfoot had. It really just, it does so much for so many characters, and yeah. it's a great scene. For sure. Um, and Shasta's saying
1: how and she tells this whole story about like Wolfman and how amazing it was that she could basically just be completely invisible and made just like not be seen and how terrible it was. And just her whole monologue of just talking to doc sitting there on the bed is just so good. And it shows so much about her. Like you give so much of a performance because again, it's another long take that slowly creeps in, but it kind of just shows how kind of what's the word I'm looking for. But like, I don't know there's what she's saying resonates you know how awful it kind of was like for her like she was saying that she you know how she just made like he wouldn't listen to her and just like would completely make her feel invisible or just like you know keep her in the background or whatever right.
0: and there's something about it that just like even deepens her character and you also can see that when she shows back up um, ultimately in the same way that she did at the very beginning of the film when she arrives unannounced at Doc's house uh, and kind of, like, catches him off guard and they have a beer and talk about, uh, you know, whatever's going on. Uh, she's no longer in that, like, formal attire and, like, kind of ha- carries this style that, like, Doc would really never thought he'd see her in. She's got the swimsuit bottom on and the country Joe and the I, that That's probably not even the name of the band, mm-hmm. but you, you get the idea. Yeah, uh-huh. She's basically kind of, like, alluded that she wants to revert back to this old lifestyle, this kind of, like insane hallucinatory love that she and doc were once in uh it's very clear to the audience in this scene that shasta misses that life and misses being with doc but ultimately um through what we've seen so far leading up to this scene it's alluded a number of times that doc not only cares very much about shasta but misses her mm-hmm. and like misses being with her. So I think what happens in this scene's climax and the fact that they both have this realization of, oh, we want to be back together, but there's no way in hell that it could possibly work. Yeah. I think that really is just like, a it's a powerful thing for their relationship in this movie.
1: Yeah. And then they ultimately have, I remember the sex scene comes like out of nowhere. Like for it sure. just, just hits you and it's just like, whoa. But it's like so well done because again, it just feels real. And then we find out, we get the title of the movie that, um she was only there. They brought her along as inherent Vice and she has no idea what that means. And then um uh what's her name again? sortelage Sortelage, yes. Sortelage says that um it's a type of insurance policy uh that something will most likely break because something will most likely be damaged.
0: Yeah. It's a clause in a Marine insurance policy that basically, uh, kind of prepares for anything you can not avoid like, uh, eggs breaking or chocolate melting or glass shattering. Um, I st- still kind of don't really understand what it's applicate. I'm sure it has an application to the larger picture of the film. It's the film's title. Yeah. Um, but I think just, it's a really interesting Uh, element to think about for sure Uh, because Shasta obviously doesn't know what inherent vice is and sort of kind of fills us in on the objective definition but doesn't ever really like think about what it means
1: I just thought of something and I'll talk about it I'm gonna save it for later because I just thought of something but that'll be good for analysis so cool um, Shasta and Doc are back and then we see them like walking on the beach um, and uh, then at the end of that sex scene she says um you know uh, this doesn't mean we're back together and he's like of course not you know um and we're looking for adrian prussia now yes. for the final part of the film and he goes to meet um penny uh, back again at her office and is looking for um because
0: At this point, the FBI and the DA's office is still caught up with finding Wolfman, but they're also
1: saying isn't this like Prush is the guy who Prussian is the guy who killed Bigfoot's partner? Big the right he killed Bigfoot's partner, but he also killed. um, uh, Did did no no yeah you're right he Prussian was directly involved with that, and then, um, and Prussian has like all these fucking baseball bats in his office, and. you know, there's something that's like, you know, that's got the, the bad blood and it's just like you got like such a weird feeling just being in there. And the swastika guy comes back in again. What's his name? Um, um, Puck Beaverton. Right. Puck Beaverton. And they lace the weed that Doc smokes and he basically just and it's like got LSD or like PCP whatever. And PCP. PCP. <laughs> he wakes up and he's handcuffed to the pipe and it's just this is where the story really starts to pick up i feel um but he's able to escape you know he's able to get out using that little shard of metal that says
0: uh shasta fey on
1: it right that's in his shoe and he beats the fuck out of um puck and he even then shoots the um shoots prussian and i remember that being in the trailer like he shoots him he's like (laughs)
0: Did I hit you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it really—it's another—it's another great example of um, like the awkward detective noir violence that I was alluding to earlier with uh, the nerd writer. Um, I really—it it works in a film like this, and although it's definitely got its qualities where it feels like the same as a film like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Nice Guys, it's also just got its own stamp of authenticity on it it feels very inherent vice and it feels it, it works for the genre yeah for sure and then we see that now um
1: bigfoot is taking the heroin out of like he's stealing all the heroin and you know leaves it with doc and i love the scene where he like beats him with the with the bush yeah, yeah, he's yeah. getting all pissed off because he leaves it in his apartment he doesn't know what to do and he's just sitting there and he's surrounded by heroin <laughs> <laughs> and he's and then he makes that deal with um with the people from the Golden Fang, mm-hmm. and it's this fucking like weird ass family, oh for sure, yes, yeah. <laughs> they're like and there's like so uh how long you been with the Golden Fang? <laughs> And they just they just look back and they don't
0: say anything <laughs> before he goes and makes the handoff of uh, the heroine and he exchanges that for koyas uh, freedom. Um, he meets with like th- one of the head representatives of the Golden Fang, who ends up being uh, Japonica Fenway's father. And again, the introduction or the reintroduction of that plot thread really just like it's it it ultimately reinforces the fact that inherent vice is. A bunch of crazy personalities and elements, almost in Big Lebowski fashion, that you never feel would fit together. And then, by the time you understand the larger picture here, you just you see how all of these things have come together, and yeah. how everything is just crazy interconnect and it's it's a great moment um i i don't know the actor's name the gentleman who plays japonica's father i oh, believe I is know. one of the shield council members in ant-man which is a weird thing to know <laughs> but that's where i
1: recognize him for. yeah um so they give her to the heroine and koi is free and they take him back home and it's a sweet moment where he goes and sees his family again mm-hmm. which is nice um and this is the scene for me that was just kind of like the weirdest scene—it's when Doc is at Talk home, scene. yeah, and he's like, "Damn it, Bigfoot!" And he kicks in his door, and he comes in, and he starts smoking the weed, and then he eats the joint, and then he eats the remainder of the weed. And Doc like <laughs> has like one tear that rolls down his face. He's just like, "Oh man!" And this has a great line in it, and he goes, "Are you okay, brother?" And Bigfoot's like, "I'm not your brother." And uh Doc says, "Yeah, but you could use a keeper."
0: <laughs> that scene arguably one of the, be it's one of my favorites in the entire movie. Um, and there's actually I, I keep bringing up the whole like lines coming back there's a line in the very beginning of the film before we're even introduced to Bigfoot like given his proper character introduction where I believe a coffee shop owner who knows Doc says oh Bigfoot came around looking for you and Doc said oh he'll probably kick in my door at some point yeah and now at the very end we have you know Bigfoot kicking his door down and easily one of the most bizarre scenes I have ever seen and for I laughed sure. my ass off the first time I said it's I still, funnier now
1: but I remember I was just sitting there the first time i was watching and i was like what is going on like i don't know like it's it just it feels like it just comes out of nowhere you know mm-hmm. um but it's i think there's a reason for it i haven't it's a very over the top reason um but i have a i have an idea um and so that ends and then we cut to doc and shasta this is the final shot they're in the car and we see the light coming in and off of their face and you know they're saying like this doesn't mean we're back together and then Shasta says of course not And then they just drive off, and it cuts to black. Yeah, and that's it. That's it, man. So let's get into analysis, because I had... There's a lot to unpack with this movie. And I had my original thought. I couldn't really pick up on certain things. I'm talking about the rewatch. The rewatch, there was things where I was just like... I almost, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, I almost feel like there were certain things were unresolved mm-hmm. and rewatching it. I was like, oh, I think there's the story, you know, and plays out differently. But I mean, all the stories do end up, they have a bookend. But then I was rewatching it and I was like, I still don't really know what the overall takeaway is of it. And I was thinking that maybe it's like, it's this fictional town in California where, you know, it's, it's during a very odd time where it's like, it's, it's a fictionalized place maybe it's just this town where so many weird things happen and it's not really supposed to have a clear answer and it's kind of supposed to not necessarily make a lot of sense. But then as I was just reading, we were just talking about the title inherent vice, I think so let's, so we said that that is like, it's a, it's a policy to, uh, it's something that will, will most likely be damaged. You know, like you said, like chocolate melting or the glass breaking and on this IMDb page here, I read that, in other words, a sort of defect in a product that will lead to it being deteriorated. And I was just thinking <clears throat> about the characters. Um, a, a lot of them, I think that that's kind of what it is. It's about something within them that will kind of be their downfall or something that will like kind of lead them on a certain life. So like with Doc, it's kind of the longing and missing of the of Shasta and his relationship and that's kind of you're not really sure where that's going to go and I think that's where kind of the movie ends is you're not sure if that's going to end up well for them or not because they don't necessarily look you know positively happy right. at the end of it it's kind of like the ending of The Graduate yeah. you know and I think that that's kind of so like they're they're longing for each other and then I feel like Bigfoot I think that's why he eats the weed at the end because he kind of misses that side of him that's why I was thinking because he does have that blend of like the hippie and the I feel like there was something in him that was attributed to the 70s or um you know the 60s and the very hippie culture and that's just not who he is anymore, and he kind of misses that. I feel like, right. or something like that. There's something still inside of him with Martin Short. It's his, you know, paranoia and the cocaine addiction. Um,
0: I think with Shasta and Doc are kind of the same thing. I definitely would agree. Um, I, I I think that's actually a great way to uh, to kind of look at it. Um, in suggesting that uh, it kind of it's a it's a clause in a policy that covers for anything that you can't avoid so it almost prepares for the inevitable and this downfall like this inherent flaw that each of the characters have inevitably comes together th- in this mystery that starts when Mickey Wolfman goes missing mm-hmm. and the way that all these characters and plot threads come together really is like the true manifestation of what inherent vice is if- i also think it's the same with like um, owen wilson's
1: character um, because I mean he's not the brightest guy and right. I think he just kind of got wrapped up in all of this kind of by you know from the number he was like shouting that thing at Richard Nixon mm-hmm. and I think he just kind of got wrapped up into it when he obviously really didn't and he just got and being an informant he just got it, it that led kind of led to his um, his involvement and I think there's something in every character you know I think also with Reese Witherspoon's character maybe it was like a past you know like his her history with Doc um and you know pushing uh like getting involved again there i think maybe i'm being vague and this is kind of more of a like a a more start of an idea but like i just i feel like there's something in it that says in you know, each character i feel like you could find something that maybe a that more more than likely will be a flaw and that will lead them to the deterioration very much like Inherent Vice. I think the title is reflective of the characters. Absolutely. Um, and maybe, I need, And like I said, I'm more than interested in looking at it again and re-watching it and being more with that idea in mind. Because I was watching it and I was just trying to make sure I followed the story hmm. the second time because I was only like i said i'd only watched it one time so i needed to pay attention to that i wasn't i was trying to like pick up on themes and certain things but i was just kind of going along as it happened but like i don't know i think now that i fully know what inherent vice means i feel like that leads to to other things and this movie is just so weird that and so interesting and original and deep that i feel like there is a lot of room for interpretation Mm -hmm, for sure um
0: beyond the title i wanted to talk for a minute about uh uh, sort uh, the film's narrator, because yeah. she's seen throughout the entirety of the film, and she's basically one of our only uh, viewpoints into the scope of everything that's happening. Uh, she provides beautiful narration, very, very, very well-written dialogue, and she definitely helps elevate the emotionality of some of the film's more beautiful moments seen in the flashbacks and the interactions between um, Doc and Shasta. I ultimately grew to interpret uh Sortilage as a figment of Doc's imagination or almost yeah. like a part of Doc's psyche. Because in the scenes that she's in, whether she's interacting with Doc or Yeah, she's, she's in the car. She's in the that car, one scene. And then it cuts and you don't see anybody in the passenger seat as Doc is driving along. Even in scenes where edge and Doc are with a group of people, be that uh, Shasta in the Ouija board scene or when they're in the restaurant, she's never seen interacting or like she's never seen interacting with or acknowledging anybody else, which kind of alludes to the fact that, um, she's ultimately processing these events the same way that doc processes them. And she's like a look into docs imagination and his, and his overall thought process. And I think that's a really great choice.
1: Yeah. That, that is, I, I t- there's so much to be found within her narration mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I don't know. I'm, I i do not have all the answers for this movie. Me neither. I, and I definitely don't think I will for a long time <laughs> or a while after, you know, rewatching it for a couple of times, but I do think that there is something to be said, you know, obviously about the title and about, you know, something, a quality within these characters, that's almost like secretive or, you know, their flaw that pushes them forward within the story. Um, and the way that the story structure, you know, plays out is just so um, original and, I don't know. I, I don't know what the overall takeaway is for it. I can't really put it into one sentence. You know, maybe it's the, you know, ultimately there will be a flaw that we necessarily can't fix that will lead us down a path that we, that will, that is inevitable, but you, know, when we can't really get out of it, you know, because there's no moments throughout this story where the characters can willingly get out of there. Right, and maybe Shasta is the one who kind of breaks the cycle because she seems to get out of her situation just fine Mm -hmm. you know that kind of is a testament to her character she really didn't need to be rescued she could do it on her own
0: and she was brought onto the boat because Wolfman considered her to be inherent vice
1: ultimately so I feel like maybe she's the one she's the exception you know maybe like the exception that proves the rule that like you know she doesn't necessarily have that she was able to do it herself and push Doc forward Mm -hmm. you know and I don't know These are just ideas that I'm having right now, but it kind of just is a testament to the writing and
0: something that makes me want to watch it again. It's a great um, story. It's it's a very thought-provoking story when you really kind of piece everything together and you think about what the title means and what the narration means and what all these characters are going through. On top of that, just my own personal experience takeaway here it's a great detective flick it really is i I love the genre and on top of everything else it is such a sophisticated thinking man's detective movie um that i just i can't help but love it i i go back and i rewatch it over and over and over and it's just i I can't help but get sucked into the story and the mystery every time for sure um before we go now is the time for
1: a very special part of the show where we rate the movie Ooh, all right. Um, What I want you to do is I want you to tell me what medal you're going to award it and I want you to give me a really brief synopsis as
0: to why. I'm going to award Inherent Vice a gold medal because in the grand scope of everything that it's trying to achieve, it does that and more. It's a great adaptation. It's a great mystery film. It's a great think piece and ultimately, even though it kind of alienates a lot of its viewers through some of its themes and its runtime especially, uh, it absolutely is not something to just be shunned after a first first viewing. This film is ripe for analysis and it's arguably one of the most interesting films you will probably ever see I'm going to have to agree with you I'm also going to give it a gold because it's not a perfect
1: movie Um, it does have its flaws where like you know it's difficult to follow Um, and obviously you have to pay attention but even if you are paying laser attention there's going to be something that's just like not going to make sense inherently you know it's just it just won't Um, and I I'll have to rewatch it over and over again and um and I'm fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with that, but uh it's it's just one of those things where uh sometimes it's just like what does that mean? Like what what what's going on? Oh, okay. And you kind of have to like look up and kind of go, but the writing in this movie, the directing, Paul Thomas Anderson will always be an inspiration to me. His this movie even got better the second time I watched it and I was just so I don't know it it was surprising the second time there was more to find there was more to marvel at and the performances all top-notch the music the cinematography the editing everything about it um i just you know fell in complete love with and uh for that reason i will indeed be giving inherent vice a gold all right that's gonna do it for this episode of frankly i love movies Thanks so much for coming on the Josh, show, Killian. Thank you very much for having me, and it was such a th- great time to be here. This was a, a really good movie to pick, and I think uh, I, and I thank you for that. So awesome job! Thank you so much, man. And thank you, folks, for listening. Um, if you want to follow, uh, frankly, I love movies on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. But uh, you can leave a comment, give a give me some feedback. I would love it. Um, if not, just tune in in two weeks for another special episode talking about a special movie with a special guest. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.